Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We are making our way straight through the Gospel of Mark, uh, at least until summer, and then we'll take a brief break and we'll do the second chapter of Second Peter, and then come back to uh, Mark in the fall, uh, going paragraph by paragraph like this, or a little slower, is an old tradition. In fact, uh, 500 years ago, uh, John Calvin was in the midst of a series of sermons on the book of Acts when he was driven from Geneva into exile. Uh, And he was in exile for about a year and a half, and that's about the amount of time it took them to figure out that maybe he wasn't the problem, but part of the solution. So now they're begging him to come back, and Calvin told them that he would rather die a thousand times uh, than come back. So no thanks. But then a good friend of his said, well, if you don't go back, may God curse your leisurely study. Well, Calvin didn't take that kind of thing very lightly. So back he went. And on the first Sunday back, making no reference to the exile other than this, he said, after a short break, we resume our studies in the book of Acts and took up the next paragraph. Um, well, that's, that's the tradition uh, that has brought us to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Let's stand together to read this passage together. You'll notice that we are simply reading the, the parallel passage to the Luke version There are a couple of differences, which is why I had the other passage read, and uh, we'll make reference to those in the message. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him or to tame him, or to train him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
For he, that is Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Let's look to the Lord's in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as the psalmist says in Psalm 123, we lift our eyes up to you. You are the one who dwells in heaven, a throne above all thrones high and lifted up. Behold, we are like servants who look to the hand of their masters, like maidservants, who look to the hand of their mistresses. In that same way, Lord, our eyes are lifted up to you, the Lord our God waiting upon you to be gracious to your people. Lord, the people of God are becoming increasingly less popular here in our culture, but they have been unpopular for a long time in most cultures of the world. They have been the object of contempt and opposition and suffering and have cried out to you, be gracious, O Lord, be gracious, because we have had enough of contempt. We are more than satisfied with it in our souls. So be gracious. The mocking of those who are carelessly wanton and arrogant and at ease. The contempt of the the proud. And so, Lord, we do think of your people all around the world this day. And we ourselves as well. May you be gracious to us wherever you have placed us, in whatever circumstances. And may you enable us, by that grace, to hear your voice in such a way to learn how to trust you, to follow you, to take our strength and our hope from you in whatever providential situations we find ourselves in at any given moment.
Uh, We ask you to do this for us. We pray again for our mission team that will be heading to Mexico at the end of the week. May you grant them safe travel. May you grant them a good reception down in the village. And as they practice evangelism and do some projects down there, may your hand of blessing be upon them at every step. And may the ties between this church and those churches be strengthened by this team that goes and represents you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we ask this. Amen. Be seated. We had only moved to Fort St. James in about this time of the year, actually, in 1974. And by the fall of 1974, there was just like a clockwork pattern on Friday nights at our house. My parents had dragged me off to the central interior of British Columbia to work with native people. We lived in a place called Fort St. James, and they were working with people on the Nicosley and the Pinchy and the Tachi reserves. And so for the first time in, uh, in my life, it became a really regular thing to have uh, uh, drunk people in our house. And certainly the most, the most reliable. Uh, you could almost set your watch by him. Came every Friday night between 10.30 and 11. Hard to be that well scheduled when you're that drunk, but he was. His name was Richard Murdoch. I would uh, work at the grocery store till 8 o'clock. I'd get home between 8.30 and 8.45. I would warm up whatever my mom had had for supper, and I'd eat it while watching the Rockford Files at 9 o'clock. And then around 10.30, Richard would come banging at the door, and he'd come in, and he'd be talking to my dad, and he'd want to play chess with me. Now, when Richard was sober, we were a pretty close match at chess. When he was drunk, I'd beat him every 20 minutes. And he was shocked each time. Randy, you cheat me, eh? No, Richard, you just don't think so clearly. When you're drunk, no, you treat me, you cheat me. Tricky white man like you. Tell me over and over again, we are, we Indians are rough, tough, and hard to bluff. But of course, not that hard to bluff when drunk, as he always was. He was in his mid-30s. By then, I was a teenager. By the next summer, my parents were going out of town, so they weren't okay. You know, you might want to not be home after, you know, I didn't want to receive Richard by myself on Friday night. I didn't want to turn him away. And so I went to a friend's house after I'd got home from work. It was just me home uh, that Friday night. And he probably got home around 1 and went to bed. And 1.30, there's banging at the door, banging, banging, banging. I figured it was Richard, so I just ignored it, waited for him to go away. But he didn't go away. 
he just, he kept every, every, I think he'd gone away. He'd let like three minutes go, and then bang, bang, bang. So eventually I go down, and I'm, our back door of our house looked right into a lean-to sort of garage, so it's pitch dark, and I look out, there's nobody. There's nobody there, and in that very second while I'm standing there, the door bangs, I jumped a foot. Open the door, and there's Richard laying on his back in our garage, and he's kicking the door periodically uh, as he comes back around. And somebody had beaten him up, and his nose was bleeding, his face was all black and blue, and he just said, They roll me, Randy. Take all my money. The old lady won't let me back in the house. Please. Could I lay on the couch? Well, I actually laid him in my foster brother Raymond's bed because they were gone. And, uh, and he spent the night there. Now, a guy like Richard, that's, we refer to a guy like that as a hopeless case. Half his life he'd been doing that by the time he was 35. Never had a job. Never really gone anywhere, done anything. Just drunk and laying around and drunk and laying around and drunk and laying around. Hopeless case. But he's like nothing compared to the guy that we meet here in Mark 5. If they're, if they're both in the hopeless case league, the guy that we meet here in Mark 5, he's on the all-star team. I mean, this, this is the hopeless case all-star team. Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee, as we noted last week. Relatively populated Jewish side, the West Bank over to the relatively unpopulated Gentile side of the sea, the East Bank. And on the way, the storm had hit, and Jesus had been awakened by the disciples, and he calms the storm, and with Psalm 107 in the back of their minds, where it was God who calms storms, You remember what they had asked, the disciples. Who is this then, that the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this then, that the wind and the sea obey him? And as soon as he gets out of the boat, we are told, this guy, This hopeless guy and Jesus meet along the shores of the west, the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. The east bank of the Sea of Galilee. I'd state our thesis for this morning this way. With Jesus, there is no such thing as a hopeless case. That's encouraging. Because most of us have situations in our lives that we have determined to be 
a hopeless case some time ago. And right up to this present moment, there has been nothing that has dimmed our sense of that. It's, it looks awfully hopeless. So it's good to know. It's good to know. But according to this paragraph with Jesus, there's actually no such thing as a hopeless case. The first piece of this paragraph that we pick up is the first five verses. And they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Luke, you'll notice, added, and he's naked, wearing a stitch of clothes. Crazy, naked guy. Meets him immediately. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. So here we meet him. It's our first, the hopeless case. The hopeless case. Came from the other side to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately... There met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, 50, 60 years ago, well, we, we sort of thought of ourselves as a sort of secular people that, that mocked the notion of unclean spirits and the devil, uh, right? It was a silly sort of... Of thing there was a there was a comedian uh, back in the '60s by the name of Flip Wilson, and one of his little pieces of stick was "The Devil Made Me Do It," you know, and it was just kind of a real. That's a you know we're sophisticated, scientific people, and so the the notion of the devil that was yesterday, that was before the dawn of science, that was before where we live now. But our secularism keeps experiencing metamorphosis, uh, at least apparently it does. Because today's secularism tells a very different story, right? In today's secularism, you might have a satanic worship sequence at the Grammys, Really an ironic one, right? So you got, you got a, a bisexual man and a trans woman, of course actually a man, singing a duet around a sequence that is celebrating the worship of the satanic. And when 
Sam Shepard throws out his little getting ready for it to air, throws out his, we're, we're about to worship. CBS, the network, responds to him. We are ready to worship. We're ready to worship. CBS, they're pretty secular. The whole thing sponsored by Pfizer. That's a pharmaceutical company. You can't get much more scientific, modernist than that. And ironically, kind of the intersection between the sexual revolution and the satanic isn't something that some right-wing bozo came up with. It's something that we put primetime on the Grammys. In today's secularism, the satanic is no longer laughed off the stage, but worshipped in primetime, Sunday nights. That's this guy. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. If he had been bound many times, he breaks the chains. Uh, notice his address. He lives among the tombs. This is dark, bleak. Uh, along that coast of the Sea of Galilee, they believe that uh, there's a the number of caves still there. But, living in these caves where they would bury their dead. Um, Sides of these caves placed the bones various places inside in whatever receptacles they were using at the time. That's where this guy lived. Inside of these caves, bodies buried all around him. He lived among tombs. They couldn't bind him anymore, not even with a chain. They considered him, in other words, to be something of a public hazard, and so they went out there, the text tells us, repeatedly, various times, lay hold of him, put him in chains, limit where he could go, But he was incredibly strong and would smash the chains and the fetters and go wherever he wanted. There's a tradition like that that runs through the New Testament that some of these demon-possessed people would have a supernatural sort of strength. For instance, over in Acts 19, you remember that's where in verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva exorcism ministry. They, they said that we know Jesus, we know Paul, you know, told the demon to get out. The demon responds to them at the end of verse 15, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped up and mastered all of them. It's one on seven. It's like a sequence from an action movie. Uh, He leaps up, it's one on seven, and the seven are soon running from the house, naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and great fear fell upon them. Well, this guy has busted all the chains and the fetters, and he's still running loose. And there's not a thing that they can do about it. It's not only a hopeless case, it's a sort of intimidating, hopeless case. And night and days among the tombs and in the mountains, and he's crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a mess. What misery. What a joyless, hopeless situation. But think about it. His parents are probably still alive, living in town. It's their son out there. His brothers and sisters, they're there living in town. Their brother's out there. Kids he was raised with, living in town. This guy they remember, he's out there. This absolutely hopeless case. Secondly, we got the hopeless case, we got the hope of Christ, verse 6 to 10. The hope of Christ. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of God Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, Send him out of the country. Now there's all kinds of strange, difficult, psychological nuances in this passage. But before we get to those, I just want you to notice that in contrast to the disciples who, when they see Jesus calm the storm, say, who is this then that the wind and sea obeys him? This guy believes that he knows exactly who Jesus is. He's in no doubt at all, though they had never met. He runs down, he falls before him, and he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of God, Most High? I adjure you by God, don't torment me. Because Jesus was asking the demon to come out of him. Now clearly, right, this knowledge, we're to understand this piece of knowledge to have come to this guy from the demons that are are inhabiting him. Not to understand him to be some kind of really insightful, crazy guy. You know, who can just recognize the identity of Israel's Messiah on sight. No, we're to understand that the insight that the guy shares is somehow passing through him. It's the insight of what the demonic realm knows about 
Jesus. And their, their basic response is, what are you doing here? Of all the people in the region, why would Israel's Messiah come out to this deserted place for one crazy Gentile? What are you doing here? Jesus, Son of God, Most High. But from their perspective, they do know it's not good that he's here. It's not good. Don't torment us. You notice how it goes back and forth. The pronouns. Singular, plural, singular, plural. What is your name? He, the guy replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He and we. We are many. A little later on. And he, singular, begged him earnestly not to send them, plural, out of the country. But this is why we had the Luke passage read. What does it mean to be sent out of the country? What's he talking about? Well, it's a little ambiguous here. It's not so ambiguous in Luke. Here's how Luke's version, parallel account, put it. Luke 8, 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That's pretty specific. That word shows up most in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 3, that's where the Satan is chained and kept for a thousand years and he's sealed inside of it. Bauerart and Gingrich, they say this in this spot, this is the only spot, they say it's sort of the abyss here, Luke 8, 31, is like a prison for demons. So you're already, you're taken out of the temptation game permanently. Placed into like a holding cell for the end of the age. And they beg him, don't, don't command us to depart into the abyss. In other words, these, they, they have a, they agree completely with the worldview of Jesus, the worldview of the New Testament, the worldview of the Hebrew Bible that bleeds over into the New Testament. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright in his a uh, book on the Apostle Paul, just, he, 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 oh, it's an oversimplification, but a very helpful simplification. He takes the, the worldview of the Hebrew Bible and says you can place it into just three categories, and all three of them are right here in this. He says, number one, the monotheism, they believe in one God. Uh, here, Jesus is Son of God Most High. But in John, he is God. He's in the beginning with God. He was God. So here's God shown up. God. This is the sense the disciples were getting when he calmed the sea, right? Uh, 
Psalm 107, verse 28, And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their trouble. He made the storm to be still. And then Jesus does the same thing. Jesus does what the Lord does in Psalm 107, and that's what prompts the question, Who is this that can do what God does? Psalm 107. Well, this is in some very real sense, you see, the God of Psalm 107. The Trinitarian nuance of such things. Second, right, says divine election. Well, that's central here. Surprising piece of divine election where Israel's Messiah shows up and he's showing particular interest in one crazy, messed up Gentile running among the tombs in a Gentile region. A really, really unlikely, unlikely candidate for the interest of Jesus. As many of us were, very unlikely candidates for the interest of Jesus. Monotheism, election, and then what this text is really focusing in on is eschatology, is judgment. Final judgment, the study of the end. Don't throw us in, it's translated repeatedly in the book of Revelation, the bottomless pit. You just fall and fall and fall and can't get out. That's the idea, you can't get out. Uh, Eschatology. Eschatology is a big thing in the Old Testament. You read the Psalms, you run into it all the time. Again, we we pretend like there were some fundamentalist preachers who made up fire and brimstone back in like 1920. Yep, they just came up with it. They preached these silly fire and brimstone sermons. Well, that, that language is actually pulled out of Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 4 following and the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven and his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of men the Lord tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence let him rain coals on the wicked fire and brimstone and a scorching wind this is how these demons think of Jesus He's a fire and brimstone and scorching wind sort of guy. Don't send us, please. Thirdly, the horrors of a sinful world. Verse 12, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Commentators are puzzled here. They write quite a bit about this. Because Mark seems to say that Jesus granted the demons their request... 
and let them go into the pigs, and then the pigs are all dead floating in the water. See, exegetically, the passage is not difficult to follow at all. That's clearly what happens. But if you, you've said to yourself, well, Jesus couldn't do that. He's not, he's not going to be doing anything like that. Then you, then you have a lot to write about. Well, how might you take this in such a way that that's not what it is? And so a lot of them spend some time, but it's, it's not very fruitful because you just can't do much with it. The sentences are so simple. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. And he gave them permission. See, one of them, well, he didn't know what they were going to do. He didn't know he was going to drown the pigs. I mean, Jesus didn't expect bad stuff out of demons, I'm sure. Um, but it is kind of shocking, isn't it? He gives them permission. Yep. Nope, I'm not going to send you to the abyss. I could. He, in other words, they've, they've been tormenting this guy for his whole, whatever percentage of his life. Jesus lets them get away with it. Nope, okay, going to the pigs. Place not too far from the town that's there today in this area of the Gerasenes, about a mile Real steep embankment, about 40-foot drop. I figure this is where it was. They run down that 40-feet embankment, about another 40 feet into the water. And they just run down. They run right into the water and drown out there. It's a, quite a picture if you lock it into your mind. If you try to, you really can't almost picture it, right? I don't know if I've ever seen 2,000 hogs in one viewing, let alone 2,000 hogs floating dead in the water. So we'll see when we go forward. It got the town's attention. They come out and look at it. They don't like it. They don't like it. But when it's all over, what you got is you got a sane guy sitting there He's put clothes on for the first time in a long time. And you got 2,000 hogs floating dead in the water. And Jesus did it. He did the one thing directly. But he's certainly traceable back to him. The other thing. He gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out. They entered the pigs. They go down. They're floating in the water. It's an absolutely gruesome, gruesome sight. It's a good reminder to us. Just because you believe Jesus in the world doesn't mean you should expect to look around and find everything's always making pretty good sense to you. Oh, I see what the Lord is up to. Oh, I see why he did this. Oh, I understand. <laughs> no. We never understand completely what he's up to. We rarely understand all that much. 
That's why it's summary, you know, that summary in the book of Proverbs of the entirety of Hebrew wisdom is to say, look, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. What you do is you trust in the Lord with all your heart. What you don't do is lean on your own understanding. So what you do is you trust in the Lord with all your heart. What you don't do is try to figure out what God is doing. Don't do that. Because you won't figure it out. And you will tempt yourself in all kinds of not very helpful thinking. It's gruesome sight. It's the horrors of a fallen world. It's messy. It's painful. It's dark. And there Jesus stands in the midst of it with this guy whom is now in his right mind. I just close with just a threefold summary of what we've looked at. With Jesus, there are no hopeless cases. So you, this is what you know for sure. You don't know what Jesus is going to do. You don't know what God's going to do. With the, with, the, with the people, with the person, with the place, with whatever it is you're most concerned about, you don't know. But what you do know is this. He can do whatever he wants. There is no such thing as an ontologically hopeless case in the world where Jesus exists. Because he can do anything. He can turn any life around, anytime, anywhere. That's what he can do. Secondly, Jesus makes really surprising decisions. Lots of people betting on the Super Bowl tonight. Lots of them are going to lose lots of money. Some are going to make a lot of money. Boy, it's a good thing, you know, that the average body of believers... Wasn't betting on this. What do you want to bet? What do you think, Jesus? Do you think he'll answer the prayer request of these demons affirmatively? <laughs> no, 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 no. They're going, they're going to the abyss. <laughs> no. Didn't see that coming. What's he doing? He can't do that. We feel that way all the time. What is, what is going on? I pray and pray, and this? Yep. Yep. Jesus makes surprising decisions. He really does. And then finally, we do really live in a fallen, messy painful place. We really do. And until the end of the age, it'll continue that way. We'll see things like the equivalent of 2,000 hogs floating in the bay. What a world. 
this fallen, sinful, painful world is. But Jesus is still here. He's still electing. He's still saving. He's still active. He's still present. He's still involved. And the day will come in which he sets it all right. That's that eschatology again. The day will come. He'll set it all right. But that day isn't yet. That day is not yet. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to see what a comforting thing it is to know who the Lord Jesus is. To look on what we're so tempted to think and to be confident are the absolutely hopeless situations that confront us and threaten to just drain the hope right out of us that they are never necessarily that because of who you are because of what you have shown us in the past about what you can do at any moment in the present may we be encouraged by the knowledge of you we pray in Jesus name Amen